0: Welcome back. Today I'm going to be reading you the final chapter from my book Mud Between Your Toes. But if you still haven't had enough of my voice, don't worry. There's a brand new series of conversations with Pete Wood lined up. The following chapter is called Lib and the Great Nahanda. My mother was well known not only in our household, but all over the farm, for being slightly spooky. Most of the household staff were aware of this. And rural Africans, let's face it, can be extremely superstitious, and ghosts were a part of everyday life. I mean, even here where I live in Hong Kong, we have the Hungry Ghost Festival. At many a breakfast, Lib would come into the dining room, and tell us about one of her dreams. They were never ordinary dreams. Well, if they were ordinary dreams, then she didn't talk to us about them. Of course, she knew which dreams were like safe dreams and which dreams were real and ominous. On one occasion in early June 1972, she came down to breakfast in tears. She had dreamed that night of a terrible disaster. She gave a detailed account of women crying. She described children, even their school uniforms. She knew many people had died, but she couldn't place where it was exactly. Silently, we listened, as did the kitchen staff. Even my dad, for once, didn't tell her to belt up. Then, on the 6th of June, a series of underground explosions rocked the wanky No. 2 colliery, killing 426 men. Horrified, we all realised that the uniform Lib had described was from the local wanky school. Her dream had come true. I mean, there were other dreams much closer to home, but I don't believe there were any other dreams that were quite so disastrous as the one about the wanky colliery. It was truly dreadful. It didn't surprise any of us too much. I mean, my mother's maternal grandmother also had premonitions and dreams and conducted numerous séances, although, back at the turn of the last century, a séance was kind of a la mode, I suppose. But Granny Adam's dreams often came true. In the middle of the night, on 15th of April 1912, she sat bolt upright in bed and screamed, Tommy's drowning! Her wail woke up the entire household. For God's sake, woman, grumbled my long-suffering great-grandfather. His name was also Tom i'm not bloody drowning i'm right here not you thomas she moaned tommy my brother tommy is drowning she could see him her favorite brother surrounded by ice-cold dark water he's drowning i just know it i know it she clutched her husband's arm her fingernails digging into his flesh Tommy's safe in London, for heaven's sake. Now, shut up. I'm tired. I've got a big day tomorrow, he said, blowing out the candle. But the next morning, every newspaper in the world bore the same version of the headline. Titanic sinks. Fifteen hundred souls drown. Now, Tommy Weston, my great-grandmother's brother, was on board, and he had been having a torrid affair with a married woman. Thankfully, he was saved, plucked out of the icy waters, but went on to America, where he was shot dead by the cuckolded husband of his lover. Well, you only get so many chances in life. Tommy's nine lives had run out. For mum, this ominous gift would return one day to save her life. This psychic precognition was not isolated to her alone. You see, you have to understand, the Victory Block and Cipollillo District held a long and highly distinguished lineage of female soothsayers, witches and mediums. This was especially widespread in the late 19th century, but went much further back in time. From the 15th century, the powerful Shona kingdom stretched from the mighty Zambezi River in the north down to the banks of the sluggish Limpopo in the south. Essentially, all of what was to become Rhodesia, plus chunks of Zambia, Mozambique and South Africa. The seat of this once-powerful kingdom was Sipalilo, only a few short miles from Masitwi farm. Sipalilo was home to a famous Shona spirit medium named Mbuya Nahanda. She must have had great authority even before the 1896-97 Matabili and Mashona rebellions, a powerful woman committed to upholding traditional Shona culture. In many ways, Mboya Nahanda was a politician and was instrumental in organizing the nationwide resistance to colonial rule during that first Chimurenga. Even the Matabele king Lobangula recognized her power and influence. Mboya Nahanda came from a long line of female spirit mediums stretching as far back as 1430. As white people, we were vaguely aware of the history surrounding this powerful woman, or family of women, and their kingdom of Monomotapa. The Mashana Rebellion was initiated in Matabili land in May 1896, and by that October had spread to Mashana land. The driving force behind the uprising was Mbuya Nahanda. The role and influence of this woman cannot be underestimated. As far as the people were concerned, God, or Mwari, spoke through Mbuya Nahanda, and she was telling them that Mwari blamed the white man for all the troubles that had come upon the land. They had brought the locust and the rinderpest, and to crown it all, the Mashona people, the owners of the cattle which had died, weren't allowed to eat the meat off the carcasses because they had to be burned or buried. Through Mboya Nahanda, Imwari decreed that the white men were to be driven from the country. They, the natives, had nothing to fear. Imwari would turn the bullets of the white man into water. Mboya Nahanda and his spirit medium husband, Kaguvi, were charged with murder, the husband, for the death of an African policeman, the wife for the death of a native commissioner called Pollard. Both were found guilty and sentenced to die by hanging. At Mboya Nahanda's execution, a drama unfolded, events which could have been interpreted as a display of her spiritual power. Two failed attempts were made to hang Mboya Nahanda before an African prisoner advised the hangman to remove a tobacco pouch and its contents from the woman's belt. This was done immediately, and the third attempt was successful. A faded black and white photo shows Mboya Nahanda dressed in a a daika kaross standing by the gallows, her empty dugs hanging flat down by her waist, the noose around her neck, her eyes eternally defiant the spirit medium's dying words were, my bones will rise again. And rise they did. A century and a half after her death, mugabe ordered his war veterans to start occupying white owned farms he said it was time to take back the land that belonged to them farms all around the country were being occupied many violently and now it was our turn It was mid-morning on the farm. From the sitting-room radio, the gentle notes from Lily Bolero played on the BBC World Service. Woody was out somewhere on the other side of the farm, several miles away. Lib was pottering, as always, from one side of the garden to the other, pulling weeds, deadheading flowers, and checking that the seedlings had been watered properly. It was best to keep occupied, even though it meant walking past the freshly-dug graves made ready for the dogs when the time finally came. They knew they were going to be thrown off eventually, and they knew they couldn't take the dogs with them. Crackers, the Jack Russell, was sniffing out snakes and lizards, his wee tail vibrating with excitement. In the distance, Libby could hear a low drumming from the compound, down by the river. It was unusual for the Tom-Toms to be going on a weekday, but not unheard of. It could have been a wedding, or a funeral, or the birth of a child. But gradually the drums got louder and louder, accompanied by several yowling women and chanting men. At first it reminded her of the Niao, who used to come every Christmas. But as the voices got louder the bright morning, began to take on a very sinister atmosphere. Sensing trouble, Lib dashed across the lawn back into the house. Conda, she called. Condor emerged from the kitchen, wringing a hand towel, his eyes white with fear, a sheen of sweat across his brow. It's the war vets, madame, he whispered. She could smell the fear on him. Hurry then, hurry, hurry, you must go down and find the boss now, Conda. Quickly, checha, checha! go down the back of the hill and see if he's at the sheds. At that, Lib dashed across the house to the bedroom and got on the agri alert. But the time for that was over. The shouting and the chanting by now had reached the bottom of the garden and the hysteria in the voices was unmistakable. Any escape route was cut off. Lib could hear the voices from at least 300 people screaming, all caught up in that pack mentality. She hurried across the lawn to try to lock the security gate. It was too late. The gang were already at the gate. Bile built up in her throat. She wanted to be sick. She could feel crackers shivering against her leg. Now suddenly surrounded by a sea of faces baying for blood, realized the game was up. This was it. This was when it all happened, when you saw your life in slow motion, raped, torn apart, and murdered by a mob. Wafts of pungent dacha, the weed the locals smoked to get high, filled her nostrils. She recoiled from the sour smell of Chebuccal beer and the eyes all around her yellow and bloodshot from cheap alcohol and smoke. The frenzied Toy-Toy raised clouds of dust from their dancing barefoot and sent the dogs into frantic lunges and snarls. The gang surrounded her in a sea of hatred and bitterness. She noticed Alec in the crowd and instinctively knew that he was the ringleader, banished from the farm all those years ago Now he was back to get his revenge. She thought back to when he was a tiny kid, playing at the back of the house with Pete, an age of innocence. She snapped back to the present. Some people held pangas, others axes. Many were carrying sticks. Others seemed possessed or in a a drug-induced hypnotic state. Beside Alec was one of the most vitriolic of the gang, a surly man called Kangachepe. She had noticed him loitering around the compound and down at the sheds for several weeks. One look at him and all I could see was rape written across his face. Pure evil, it was utterly terrifying. Kangachepe reached out with one long, filthy finger, stuck it up my mother's nose and tried to pull her towards him. Then the shoving and pushing started. First one tentative little push, followed by another slightly bolder shove. Encouraged, they all began fighting to get at her, grabbing her dress, her hair, her arms squeezed by rough workers' hands, from one side to the other, helpless, pushed around like some rag doll. This is our land now, one of them screamed. She recognised him as a teenager who had grown up on the farm. He had always been polite, shy even. She had given him his first job, as she remembered, as a garden boy, when he was no higher than a hoe. And now here he was, screaming and swearing at her, the shona language pouring out. She felt fortunate that she couldn't understand what was being screamed. And then they reverted to English, and the true horror began to seep in. We are going to kill you, you white bitch, Cunga shouted in her ear. He had a crazed look that turned her blood cold. You deserve to die, shouted one woman, you fucking white whore. Where in God's name was John when you needed him, thought Lib? Someone elbowed her from behind. They were all around her. Another boy, a kid really, grabbed her hair and yanked utter loathing seethed in his eyes again. She knew him as one of the boys from the farm, a cattle boy, usually timid, now rabid as a jackal. By now it seemed like everything was taking place underwater, at a distance, almost a silent throbbing, the drumming and clamouring muted as if her ears were blocked by cotton wool. Somewhere in the distance, she could hear the hysterical barking of the dogs. Crackers, the terrier, snapping at something. The time for panic had come and gone. This was it. This was, she realized, her time to stand tall. Stop, she shouted. Her voice sounded dry and brittle, but clearly had the desired effect. All of a sudden, all around, There was a muffled silence, the scuffling of feet and a few inaudible voices, people shifting from foot to foot. Now every inch of amateur dramatics, every tiny bit of elocution training and education and stoicism and bravery came down to this one brief moment. Mess this up, missy, and you're done for. Slowly, dramatically and with as much height a five foot four woman could muster she glared at the faces surrounding her rotating like a woman possessed gently prizing a pair of snotty hands from her torn sleeve she faced a sea of eyes dust streaked faces chapped and cracked lips drawn back into snarls many she noticed had spittle hanging in threads from their chins She knew these people. Most of them had grown up on this very farm. She noted some were wearing old clothes that once belonged to her kids. Hand-me-downs, she thought. Or maybe stolen. Was that Duncan's rugby jersey? Is that shirt one of Mandy's? She tried to focus. What was happening? One woman, still in her teens, a tiny baby bound tightly on her back, spat at her. The gob hit her neck and slid down her chest, the woman's undisguised loathing evident in her dark, opaque eyes. It was the women, always the women, who were the most vicious, Mum said later. They were responsible for this insanity, this pack madness. Well, of course, there was also Alec, she said. I could see him the whole time, quietly standing to one side, like he was directing everything, the little sod. Of course, it got me thinking. Incredible how I could think so clearly, what with all the shoving and the pushing. But I started wondering, what had I ever done to them to deserve this? Her temples began to throb as if an uncontrollable rage began to take hold. It was as if her head was in a vice. Drawing a deep breath, she slowly took in the scene and then pointed her finger. Now, you listen here, you little shits! I'm related to Mboya Nahanda! Mboya Nahanda? Where the hell did that come from, she thought. She must be going gaga. She wanted to giggle with hysteria but managed to continue. Oh, yes! I am the white Mboya Nahunda, and I know all of you. I know your faces, she pointed to Alec. I know your parents. I saw you all grow up. She stuck her finger into the chest of Kanga Chepi. And remember this. My grandchildren learned to speak Shona before they could speak English. My grandfather carried Cecil John Rhodes' coffin up the hills of Matopos. I have as much right to be here as any of you. I am a Zimbabwean. I am African. I don't care what you do to me. You can do what you want to me. You can kill me, do you hear? I don't care what you do to me. Now she was turning around, slowly taking in each of their faces. But if just one of you harms any of my children, I will come back and haunt you she let the statements sink in you could have heard a pin drop mboya nahanda's spiritualism was very real to them after all she was born only a few miles away libby now looked around her silence eyes darted furtively from one person to the next unsure hesitant ha. Ah. This was bad mooty. Everyone had heard from the kitchen staff that Lib could be a bit eerie. In fact, some even went as far as calling her a witch and everyone believed that bad spirits and tokoloshes roamed the land. Someone shrugged, another laughed nervously, but there was no conviction in it. A few of the men smiled. Ah, madame, one voice says, you cannot scare us. Others looked at the orator. It was Alec. They were looking for guidance, for some form of bravery. It wasn't forthcoming. One word from him, and she would have been torn to pieces. But Alec wasn't in the mood for a fight today. Then they shrugged, resigned, shook their heads, backed away. Ah, better to kill someone who is not a witch. Almost as one, the group retreated. A pathway opened up behind Lib. Not taking her eyes off them, she edged away, knowing that a lion will always attack a running animal. She quietly walked back across the lawn. The blood-red anger before her and the silent, angry stares from behind bore into her body like knives. Holding herself erect, she walked slowly across the garden, like a soldier in no-man's land. Her instinct was to run, to scream, to escape as quickly as she could. Her head cleared. Her oral senses came rushing back. She gulped air as the feeling of suffocation lessened its grip. The dogs were going crazy. Had they been barking the entire time? She had no idea. As soon as she was at the house, she collapsed on the veranda floor, gasping, exhausted and unable to move. The pips announcing the start of the BBC News played somewhere in the background. This is love. It was over. They would be back, but for now she was safe. And where the hell was Woody? Crackers was licking her face, his little body trembling from the assault. She gave him a hug and, gathering herself, she stood up, walked across the veranda and lowered herself into the rat chair. Her legs were barely able to support her small frame. In the distance, she heard the Land Rover labouring up the hill. There were no tom-toms. No ululating, no banging of drums. By now, the mob was long gone. Woody strode onto the veranda. Conda, bring tea, he ordered. Then, glancing across at Lib, remarked in his dry, deep voice, Christ, woman, what the hell's wrong with you? You look like you've seen a bloody ghost. She looked across at him and shook her head. If only you knew, she thought. If only you knew. Two weeks after the assault in October 2002, my parents were forced off the farm. Kangachepe took over the house and ended up sleeping in Lib's bed. The dogs were put down. It was the end of my family's time on the farm. The wind of change is blowing through this continent. Whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. We must all accept it as a fact. And our national policies must take account of it. I don't believe in black majority rule ever in Rhodesia. Not in a thousand years. I think it will be a disaster for Rhodesia. Good evening from Salisbury. Mr. Mugabe's landslide victory here with a total of 57 of the 100 seats has left Rhodesia's white population fearful tonight. But Mr. Mugabe, in an exclusive interview with Newsnight, says he wants them to stay and he wants to join the Commonwealth. I feel sick. (laughs) That's all I can say. Are you going to stay in Rhodesia? I don't think so. Where will you go? I go to Britain, in spite of the weather. A little worried. Uh, I'm hopeful that this will sort of stop the war. If it stops the war, then I'd live under any conditions. Quite honestly, the war has been dreadful. I lost my husband. I had three children to support. Um, I can't. I am worried because uh, if he should nationalise, as has been said, um, I stand to lose everything. Haven't you got any brains in your head to know what you've done? How do you feel about Mr. Mugabe's victory? I think it stinks. And the British stink with it because she just given a a victory to bloody Russia, you idiot. Can you tell us what your message would be to white people in Rhodesia now? They do have an image of you. We've been talking to them today as a Marxist, a communist, who means to transform this economy and society. What is your message to them tonight? Well, my message to them is that... um, uh, We would want to see them live in this country, free from any restrictions, free from any um, uh, victimization. To us, we cannot practice racialism in reverse. We just cannot do it in principle. Even as we acquire our land, we shall not deprive the white farmers of land completely. Every one of them is entitled to at least one farm, but they would want to continue to have more than one farm, more than one farm indeed, 15, 20, 35 farms, one person. These are not figures I am just getting out of my mind. They are real figures. So no farmer is being left without land. After 37 years in power, demanding nothing less than absolute loyalty, Robert Mugabe's reign was never going to end at the ballot box. But few could have imagined those two weeks in November 2017 when his military moved against him and his people took to the streets. Robert Mugabe, the former president of Zimbabwe, has died at the age of 95. Mugabe was at the center of his country's struggle for independence and became its first prime minister in 1980 before becoming president seven years later. His reputation as a hero of the independence movement was overshadowed though by the corruption and human rights abuses which marred his time in power and his policies caused the collapse of Zimbabwe's economy. He was forced from office by his own party in 2017. Shingai Nyoka looks back at his life. Well that brings an end to the first series of Mud Between Your Toes. It's been a terrific, moving and often fun 50 episodes and i've enjoyed sharing my life indeed our lives with you all but fear not you can't get rid of me that easily i'm back again next week with another 50 episodes of conversations with pete wood and my goodness i think you'll really enjoy the lineup of people who are going to be talking to me over the next few weeks so bye for now